Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. This is Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That is the promise to glade, the hill we climb, if only we dare it, because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. And the United States of America government, when it came to treating her citizens of Indian descent fairly, she failed. She put them on reservations. When it came to treating her citizens of Japanese descent fairly, she failed. She put them in internment prison camps. When it came to treating the citizens of African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in science experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God bless America? No, no, no. Not God bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. 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 Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And good evening. It is so great to greet you here at Our Common Ground. Thank you for being with us here tonight. And today is 
Saturday, January 23rd, 2021, as we end the first week, uh, not even the full week, of a new administration in the United States, headed by Joseph Biden and Kamala Harris. Thank you for being with us. If you are listening on one of your smart devices, you can join us at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. We have plenty of room in our chat room, which is only moderated when you act up, and then I act out. But I am Janice Graham, and I am your host, and I have been hosting our Common Ground on terrestrial and Internet in over 34 years. Tonight here at our Common Ground in what we call the Sanctuary of Black Truth, that is looking at events and circumstances, public policy, socioeconomic crises, and victories through the lenses of black America, and we're happy to do it. Uh, This is a place where friends come to find comrades. As we come into our broadcast, and as I have been doing since the beginning of the global COVID-19 pandemic, there are currently, as of today, 24,657,405 active cases of COVID-19 in the United States, all 50 states and 56 states and territories. Currently, as of today, 113,609 Americans and residents of the United States are hospitalized by this virus infection. And the confirmed deaths as of this day, 408,272. We're asking you to be safe, to incorporate in your life behavior uh, safe practices uh, um, that um, you need to protect you and your family and the rest of us. You need to be discussing with your personal physician the notion of receiving the um, COVID-19 vaccine, wearing masks, maintaining safe behavior, washing hands, and social distancing, and we hope that you are doing all of that. I can't give you any uh, advice as to how to handle the anti-maskers with the exception of simply saying to you, avoid them. And for some of us, be very, very careful if you respond to those who are anti-maskers. It's not, uh, sometimes it can be a little slippery out there, and we hope that uh, you will stay safe. We want to bring to your attention that our common ground in the entire world 
mourns the death of Hank Henry Hank Hammer Aaron. Died on Friday morning, uh, 86 years old. He was by any measure a stellar sportsman and baseball player. Home run, 755 in his career. Um, and uh, I knew Hank Aaron when he played for the Braves uh, as I grew up in West Palm Beach, and the Braves had a very visible, when they came for spring training, a very visible presence in, in my community. We also note that Larry King, the longtime uh, celebrity broadcaster uh, who was recently hospitalized with COVID-19, passed away on this morning. And we also want to note the retirement after 50 years of Tom Brokow from the NBC network. Um, we want to remind you that we are on Facebook. We are on Twitter. My handle is at Janice OCG. And um, this program, this broadcast, has a library of archives. And if you missed our, our broadcast last week, we, we really uh, encourage you to go back and, and, and take a listen. We had Dr. James Taylor of the University of San Francisco, uh, chair of the political science department, and Makani Thimba, who is the lead and chair of uh, Higher Ground uh, Strategies for Community Activism. And it was just a wonderful show. I really enjoyed it, and I want to thank them. I'm sure one of them or both of them are, are listening tonight. So come on in. Our number is 347-838-9852. Our guests and our topic tonight, white crime when whiteness presides. And we're going to be looking at both the law enforcement, the prosecutorial community, the bench, as well as what our department of what we might expect on this topic. Our guest is law professor and author Jennifer Taub. She is the author of Big Dirty Money, and our discussion is going to be focusing in on her work in that book. Our number, 347-838-9852. You need to write it down. But we're going to start off this evening. We're going to take a moment. We're going to pause. And I want to thank all of you who are in the chat room. But I especially always want to shout out to Alpho of the Alpho Show, our network, TruthWorks, Truthworks Network, and his work there. Alpho had a show on fire. He, he really brought it off the bread delivery truck last night, <laughs> and I want to thank him for that. And Al Michelle Odom, who is the Our Common Ground Media Administrator, she helps us to organize our information because that is what we do here. We try to organize and present information 
that assist you to become the best kind of community organizers, having the best kind and most successful kind of impact on working on these issues. But we're going to pause for a minute, and um, I I do want to say to um, all of you, we are grateful for your support. Mami, te quiero. 
pero si una tarde llegué, las cardenias de mi amor se mueren. Será porque han adivinado es tu amor mío traicionado. So they're moving ahead with a plan, y'all, but I, we seem to be in some kind of virtual loop here. And we got to get ourselves out of it. And we got to get out, out quick. Ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. When we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible. We are the miraculous, the true wonder of this world. That is when, and only when, we come to it. Yes, today is my birthday. And for all of you who are asking how old I am, I will only say I am no longer the youngest in the room. Incredibly, this is the only Saturday that I have celebrated my birthday since we went to weekly programming. You have been my family for 34 years. I want to thank you for all the love, all the support, for all of the birthday greetings and well wishes, the ways that you have made me a better person as I go into the new year and proud of what I do as my life's work. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing and all your well wishes and welcome into my new year. And now back to Janet. And I want to thank you, uh, all of our listeners, for your birthday wishes. It is very um, rare that I put a focus on me, but I knew people were going to be calling and trying to mix up birthday stuff with what we have, the work we have to do here tonight at our common ground, and you can all blame it on Alpha. <laughs> but I do, I, I do want to thank you for uh, all of your birthday wishes, and I am um, thanks to Alpha for his call today and, and Kimba Smith, who always calls me on my birthday um, and she and her parents had a conference call with me today. All of the wonderful cards that I received from friends and family. Um, Lucy, who is one of my oldest friends. Um, and, um, of course, 
my family, and it's really hard to um, not be with them because of the pandemic. And uh, they were very generous and loving. Uh, got a got a wonderful card from my grandson Miles, who said that he was happy uh, and proud to be the grandson of the biggest badass grandmother ever on the universe. <laughs> so, so thank you so much, and we're going to move on um, as I go into my new year um, and the last year of my broadcast um, career. I've been very blessed in my life um, for a wonderful and loving and encouraging family, uh, for parents that were nurturing and were race people, for a very um, beneficial uh, experiences, in, for very beneficial experiences in my life. Uh, I've, I've had the best education available in this country. Uh, I've had successes and experiences professional that are very rare and have been enriching, but they have been they have embellished my perspective about what it is like uh, in America. And um, I have, with this broadcast, talked to, interviewed the greatest black minds, um, thought leaders, authors, journalists, scholars, academicians, and uh, I am so grateful. And on my birthday, I always try to reflect. And so with that little musical preview, if you ask me, so what are you thinking about on your birthday? Those are the kinds of things that I was thinking about, my mood. Um, and, and you know, I never, ever, um, for years and years, wherever B.B. King was on my birthday, I made sure that so was I. So thank you very much. Here tonight, um, white crime, when whiteness presides. Our guest, and we're so lucky to have her, is um, Jennifer, Professor Jennifer Tomb. Many middle and upper class U.S. whites live in environments of relative social isolation. And therefore, they have a mindset and a blindness about what happens to people who are not like them. But they have an alliance with people who direct and make decisions about their lives. So our guest, Jennifer Taub, in her book, Big Dirty Money, suggests that we must first attempt to measure white-collar crime and white crime as a whole. And we're going to discuss with her what happens when uh, people of means, people of privilege, people of money um, go up against 
and ally with the people who associate themselves with them as opposed to people who do not. Uh, It's really, really interesting that um, how we all witnessed how whiteness protected white criminals at the nation's Capitol building in D.C. on January 6th. So without um, breaking um, my my general, um, I, I generally like to have a, a nuanced discussion with authors because they write and do the research and study for reasons. And I see that we've got a caller. We're we're going to take your calls uh, before the break, but I want to introduce you to Professor Jennifer Taub. Welcome to Our Common Ground. Janice, thank you so much for having me. It's my honor, especially this evening on your birthday. So happy birthday to you. Very much. Um, I appreciate it. Jennifer, let me ask you, uh, and I want to call you, and I would like to ask callers to call you Professor Taub, uh, our author Taub, researcher Taub. What, <laughs> what, inc- what precipitated in your law career and your, your, your schol- legal scholarship to begin to look at this issue and summarize for us exactly what this all means in the lives of Americans who believe that law and order is kind of like apple pie and ice cream. You know, it's we, it shouldn't surprise you that we have not just two or many Americans, but we have sometimes what I call the injustice system, not a justice system, because people are treated differently based on their access to power. And in our society, um, from the beginning, from 1619, we all know the nation was built on race-based slavery. And we have not fully overcome those those issues. And so the there are so many examples um, of this, and most people think about it in terms of the criminal justice system when it comes to um, incarceration or overcriminalization of things like drug crime. But I was really interested in looking at it from a different angle. Instead of talking about overcriminalization when it comes to black Americans, I wanted to look at undercriminalization when it comes to white Americans, and the place to look at that turns out to be in the area of white-collar crime. Um, And just to say there are a lot of folks who object to that term because they think, why should we call it white-collar crime, you know, referring to the white-collars professional men used to wear for work? Um, Why don't we just call it crime? Why is it treated separately? Um, And it turns out that the guy who coined the term white-collar crime back in 1939 was doing it because the people counting up crime, the people prosecuting um, folks, were leaving out a whole class of people. 
and just to be clear, and I think this is, um, I know I'm, I'm meaning to get to your question of how I got interested in this, but I just want to just explain what the, this is, that, um, that when Edwin Sutherland made up that, coined that term white-collar crime, he was focusing on the status of the person. This has changed over time, but he defined a white-collar criminal as somebody with high social status, who was very respected in his community, who committed crime in the course of his occupation, right? So this was a very status-based thing. He didn't use the word white, but it was, and he doesn't talk about race, but it's in, in the kind of people he was talking about and the kind of corporations he was focused on. He was talking about a lot of the robber barons from the early, um, you know, late 19th, early 20th century, who he was focused on. He was focusing on upper middle class and upper class white powerful men. That's what he was talking about. And there's no question, even if he didn't use, he didn't use those words. Now, over time, the, well, he, but he wrote, he gave this speech in 39, 1949, he writes a book um, and then he died. Um, sadly, he taught in, in, in Indiana, walking on his way to the university, he had a heart attack. And his, his new revolutionary idea to focus on the crimes committed by wealthy white men, um, he had no more control over his theory. It was just a word out there. And over time, it has evolved to focus more, instead of on the status of the criminal, it's, it's now much more focused when people talk about, well, not, that's not all of us when we talk about it, but when prosecutors count up white-collar crime or when they make decisions about how to prosecute it or when the FBI does its annual statistics, they don't look at the status in the, of the individual. They focus on particular crimes on the books. And here's what the big problem is, what I found out in researching the book, is that if someone commits welfare fraud, and I'm not talking about someone who's running a big ring, but an ordinary person who makes a mistake or does something wrong in applying for welfare or someone who writes a bad check, that's going to be treated as a white-collar crime. Or someone who's working in a store who embezzles from the cash register, takes money out of it. I'm not condoning someone taking money out of the cash register. I'm not saying that's okay. But if we're trying to talk about white-collar criminal enforcement, most people, if I told you enforcement's up or enforcement's down or these are the kind of sentences people get, people, I think it's misleading if you're counting in to this white-collar crime, which really should be focused on the status of the individual so we can see how the powerful behave. It's now just kind of all mixed together, and we don't really have good data on it. So that's kind of what concerns me. But Janice, really, and I know I'm going on and on, but I want to get back to your last question. I wanted to follow this because I grew up in the Detroit area. Um, and when I was high, in high school in the 80s was right around the time after those mandatory minimums came in for drug crimes. And I remember speaking to a federal judge who was so very upset and he refused to take any more drug cases because he thought it was so unfair. And I was a teenager growing up in a very white, upper-middle-class suburb. And it, Michigan, um, at that time, the Detroit era and the Detroit suburbs were hugely segregated. And people don't talk about it, but there's, of course, racism and segregation in the North. Um, some people just focus on the South. But at that time, I saw that the, you know, the white kids in my suburban high school were you know, smoking pot and doing other kinds of drugs and having parties. And if they got in trouble, 
they got a slap on the wrist and they got went to rehab. But if you were a kid from Detroit who was black, you maybe got put in jail. Um, and if you had a, another offense, this could, was a maximum mandatory sentence that could ruin your career and your life. And that's just not, you know, you look at these different worlds. And so I was always interested and always felt bad and felt like the system was unfair about how people were treated. So again, I wanted to look at, a lot of people have been looking at that over the years, right? Um, and, and we, and, and, but not enough people have been looking at how the wealthy, white and well-connected make their money and gain power in the society because they get away with crime. Uh, let's focus for a minute on uh, perhaps uh, questions that listeners have in regard to um, how the the uh, war on drugs versus the war on the mafia and uh, that kind of corruption versus uh, RICO laws come together, and whether or not, my question to you is, is there somewhere in the system a deliberate or maybe even accidental because of the way the laws are written, um, distortion of how these laws, both the sentencing, both arrests, and the type of arrest, the characterization of arrests, and, and uh are 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 done based on socioeconomic factors, demographic factors, and geographical factors. Because when you look at the incarceration in our prison patterns in our in our prisons, it's filled with mostly poor black and brown people. Yes, I. That's, what, what that's I a lot. You, I know that's a lot. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, it's there. There are different touch points there, but I, but I hear what you're saying, and I agree that every point, um, in the encounter from 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 a potential arrest, um, or, you know, you, and I say potential because you could think of it as a traffic stop, right? Some don't result in arrest, some result in worse, right? Any encounter. Yes. With any encounter with law enforcement, let's say, or any moment of apprehension, all the way through the system, up and through sentencing, there is interactions with people, and people have both explicit and implicit bias, regardless of their race, right? So even before we get to the laws on the books, we get to the person who is interacting with a subject and making a decision about whether to pursue, get them in that process or not. And all along mm-hmm. that way, there's that moment of, do I forgive? Do I let this one go? In fact, we, we have seen anecdotally, no one has studied this comprehensively, but we can think of all these different examples documented where that bias affects it but in addition to that, and I'll give an example in a moment, but in addition to that, I, what you're getting at is also true, which is that baked into the rules that if once someone's in the system, 
Um, once a rule gets applied, in addition to it, anytime there's discretion, bias can come in, right? But there's also something about the rules themselves that favor people who have money and power. I mean, some of it we can think of the rules around cash bail right there. You know, we look at someone like Khalif Browder who couldn't make bail, the young man who was, who was accused of stealing a backpack at 16, spends three years in Rikers Island without a trial um, and then commits suicide. There's, there's him, right? And then we have, you know, Riley Williams, who also had a backpack. She allegedly stole and said, you know, we have records of this, um, but she's accused of stealing um, either Nancy Pelosi's laptop um, in the insurrection or maybe it was the hard drive. And she is, she's someone, she supposedly was going to sell it to the Russians. And she's someone who was released on bail to her mother, but she had the capacity to have the money, the lawyers, um, to be able to get this. And you can just see this disparity right, right there. And that's in a decision-making process, but it's also baked into the system to require cash bail. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, as you know, opposed to making a dangerous so that's one example, right? If we get it in the yeah. sense when, when, when you bring it, 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 it especially when you bring in the example of Khalif Browder, who sat in Rikers Island for two years mm. just on charges. He never saw mm. a judge. He never gave an mm. op- and, and after two years, they released him. And when you give those right. kind of examples, when black people are faced with that kind of reality, I have to admit to wanting to punch some people in the neck when I hear them whining the law of the law. The law means mm. whatever you want to make it mean, depending on how much power you have. And that is one of the touch points, if you want to call it, of the kind of hostility and the kind of reluctance and the kind of calling for police, defunding the police, that black people particularly and brown people particularly have sit upon to make those kinds of challenges. I mean, it is maddening the ease to which uh, the law enforcement and the judicial system let people who engage in for as you pointed out, a violent insurrection and riot go free while poor people and black people get jailed for shoplifting voting uh for the the case in Connecticut where a woman went to jail for yep. five years uh because yep. the she mom. was homeless yep. yes, she was homeless, and she enrolled her child in um, a a school system district that the law said she had no right to do. It's a reminder that the law is about protecting a type of whiteness even more so than safety. Yes. It's so painful, Uh, right? I mean, because if if there was only one Khalif Browder, that would be enough, right? Your heart, it's an injustice. It should never happen again, but... Then we know it's there are so many there are so many examples right yeah. we can look yeah. and I'm not even talking about white collar crime yet but but I will be making these comparisons you know and we you know at the other end 
of the spectrum is when you get to sentencing, and at least in the sentencing, at least in the federal system, built into both the federal statute as well as the sentencing guidelines, are letting the judge, which you can understand, treat everyone as a human being, not like a a robot, and you look at the person as a whole, but part of that process allows you to look at the contribution someone's made to the community. Well, how are those contributions measured? Who gets to contribute to the community? And what they're talking about are things like charitable works. Well, for God's sake, you know, Bernie Madoff, someone who did confess to his crimes and is in prison, but, but someone like that, often people who are going to be a con artist, you know, grease everybody's palms ahead of time. So I'm sure, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. this charity or that charity is going to say nice things about them. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's in it. But going back to the beginning of the cycle, um, you know, to me, I talked about Khalif Browder, right? There, there's a decision even before he's put in Rutgers, a decision to prosecute 16 year old, right? Let's look at, you know, you look at somebody like, um, you look at somebody like, um, George Floyd, you know, uh, rest his soul. You look at someone like Eric Garner. What they have in common, which not everybody thinks about, is those were um, those were allegations of white collar crime. I'm not saying they're white collar criminals. Remember that diff- difference. But these are the kinds of crimes that are economic in nature. Let's start with Eric Garner. Right, he was selling Lucy's. And that is what they were, what they, the, the crime they, they, that he was allegedly committing was a tax evasion. And it was a small time tax evasion. He was essentially depriving New York, the state, and the city of about $5.85 a pack. Someone buys the cartons out of state where the taxes are lower, you know, brings them into the city. And he was selling them as a way to make a living for his family. And he was surrounded, tackled, and killed on the street for tax evasion. And it's outrageous. Um, And when you compare that to other kinds of people who are accused of tax evasion, can you imagine? I mean, in my book, I use this example, and I say, you know, and I know they're going to try to look at it again, the failure to prosecute, but the decision, um, they failed to prosecute the police officers like Pantaleo who killed him. And the reason that the feds gave, um, which is kind of unbelievable, is that um, it wasn't excessive force. Again, how is this, this goes back to your other question, baked into the system is bias because what they, when they decided, when the prosecutors said, we're not going to prosecute these guys, they tried to imagine they were a jury. And they said they didn't think a jury would think it was unreasonable force that, you know, them add to force they used because they thought he was going to resist arrest. This is outrageous, but that's the way you can tell there's bias there is I want to ask you, can you imagine cops circling, tackling and choking a white woman who was about to drop her tax return in a city mailbox where she was lying on her taxes? What What would go on there? Right. And these are the equivalents. In fact, her crime, if she's cheating, is even more money. You don't hear, I mean, Janice, have you ever heard about plainclothes police coming in and, you know, to a middle-class white suburb and coming in when someone's going out to put their, pick up their paper out of the mailbox and choking them? Does that happen well, in our society? 
I mean, yeah, yeah. And it's it's it, and and so this is where it's even. It, it, there was no justice. There was no. It, and what's also unbelievable is the system was set up for that kind of cheating. This kind of arbitrage that happens that happens in other fields. The idea that. Of course, someone when they when you have neighboring states and you raise the cigarette tax in one and lower in the other, someone's going to try to take advantage of that. And the way to handle an economic crime like that shouldn't be to kill someone on the street corner and and round people up and lock them up. But New York City, um, I think Bloomberg was mayor. They did it over and over again, and and, and I think it was police harassment of people um, in that situation. There there had to be a better way to manage that. Um, obviously. And you have the same story with George Floyd, where he was being accused of, of a counterfeit $20 bill. Right? Um, and again, like, how is it even how is it even possible that we could just go on and on with the kinds of names, and we can, we can talk about Black Wall Street in Tulsa. I heard in your intro, that was the, um, the voice of the young woman I don't know what her name was, but she was um, so eloquent this summer during the um, protest after the murder of George Floyd, talking about putting all of this in the context of the broken bargain. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I see this in a, long, a longer, on, on the one hand, the law seems to be saying we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to keep one group of people under tight control. And then there's another group who gets to kind of do what they want, and if they get caught, maybe we give them a little fine. Um, I, I'm, I'm making some extremes because there are people who obviously do sometimes get prosecuted and go to jail for a white-collar crime. But as you might know, they go to what the prisons that are called club-fed. Those are the nicknames they're given. And they're treated um, in much better conditions, in much safer conditions, um, than people who are not in those types of minimum security prisons. Um, and in my book, I have an example of someone who was involved in a, a woman involved in a white car crime who, when she gets to the sentencing, the judge decides to give her no time because he thinks she was um, sorry for what she did. And she had the wherewithal to get another job um, after that and move on with her life. And it, it, notably, she was involved in, it had to do with a kickback scheme involving um, a billion-dollar New York State pension fund. She, that's not how much money she was involved in, but she was getting kickback payments. And as part of the scheme, um, in addition to giving watches and gifts, she was part of two people who also gave the, someone, in order to get money from him, um, gave him crack cocaine. This is an investor who was given crack cocaine. But those crack cocaine charges um, aren't part of the charges against them. So, again, yet another decision. We know how long people get put away for crack cocaine. So there are decisions that are made, and there are lawyers for the wealthy who can position their clients in such a way that a judge will look, a white judge will look at a white defendant often. And, again, we don't have all the data on this. I'm just giving you anecdotes because I see too many of them and think, well, this person made a mistake. Let's not, you know, quote, ruin their life. What does it say when they say these things in sentencing about how they think about the lives of people who don't look like them, right? I mean, it's a whole a lot of work that needs to be done about bias. Let's talk. Uh, let's talk for a minute because in your book, one of the things that you do is that, um, as as I was reading excerpts, 
I was taking white co- the collar out of the word and saying white crime, <laughs> saying, you know, uh, bringing it down to a more simple version. <laughs> but it is clear that when white people have resources, when they have money to to hire the best lawyers, let's talk about lawyers for a minute. And to what extent are lawyers um, distorting, um, dysfunctioning, actually, uh, the courts on issues of crime in America? And I'll, I'll give you I'll give you an example. Uh, I had the. Um, um, the opportunity to talk to a member of the pardon board of the Commonwealth of Virginia today. And she was telling me about a case where a man who killed a police officer was uh, and has spent 38 years in prison at the age of 82 was pardoned. Mm-hmm. And now the police department, working with the, the Department of justice of the, the 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 commonwealth of virginia are now bringing suit against the pardon board for that pardon hmm. and it's that kind of judgment that can be applied a- across the board prosecutors who are not bringing the right kind of law against police officers who are murdering black women in their beds. Mm. So it's easy for a police officer to go into a court with the right lawyer to convince the judge, based on the law of the charge, that they should be somehow released, not uh, rescinded, dismissed, I mean, we're seeing that over and over and over. And I know one of the answers to it, Jennifer, uh, Professor Taub, is that we've got to do a better job as activists in challenging who gets the job of prosecutor, who gets the job mm-hmm. of judges. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Donald Trump in the la- uh, 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 Donald Trump in the last week uh, is going to benefit from all of the federal judges that Mitch McConnell forced through the Senate, a hundred, uh, 173 of them, over the last two years. When I it's time to bring him that. to justice. Pardon me? Well, some good news. I one good thought on the judges. People focus a lot on all the seat, you know, empty seats that Trump filled. And that might mm-hmm. be true, and there aren't as many empty seats now, but there's nothing stopping Congress from creating more judges. They could. They're the ones who decide. We don't have, our judge, our, we don't have enough um, judges on the Supreme Court. We don't have enough circuit court or federal trial court judges. I mean, you hear people saying now that there, that there's so many um, – people being arrested in the insurrection, they won't have be able to prosecute because it will just clog up the courts, make the courts bigger. You know, we have a bigger well, country. Well, I say borrow some cages from ICE. 
How about that? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. But I know you're joking, but the thing is all, you know, any t- you know, it's so hard to talk about, um, you know, about the carceral state and, uh, you know, abolishing prisons. And then we think about, well, what do we mean by that? You know, what is, we have to also rethink all kinds of issues around punishment. But, you know, some folks say to me, um, you know, I hear a lot of discussions about abolition, and people say, well, how, how can we have how can we have that? Um, and, I, you know, others will point out, well, we practically have that in the white-collar area. I think what I would say is prisons need to be, if you're going to incarcerate someone, there should be a good reason for it. I mean, to the extent we think, you know, that it's going to create deterrence, there are a lot, that's beyond what I study, um, but it needs to be studied specifically with regard to white-collar crime, um, how deterrence works, because it's going to be different than for other types of offenses, because people who tend to be white-collar criminals, the types that are the type of person like Sutherland was talking about, who's white, wealthy, and well-connected, maybe they're not white, but they have power. Someone in that position is doing a cost-benefit analysis and thinking about that, well, if I get caught, I'll just pay a fine, I'll hire a lawyer. And they're thinking about all of that. In the absence of a potential for incarceration, there are there's no limits on what somebody who doesn't care about victims, who has power, what they could do. And there have to be consequences. And I guess that it's a hard question to ask um, about when, generally speaking, we have too, obviously too many people in prisons, I don't think we should be imprisoning people for drug crimes. That would save federal judges, right, What one thing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know how you feel about whether there should ever be prisons, um, but the, to the extent they exist now, we know that there's huge bias in who ends up in them, for how long, who gets bail, um, and so on. Well, you know, it, it gets basic and 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 the basic under undercurrent of it all is the way in which uh our judicial system defines justice mm-hmm. um, and when let me ask you and we're we're gonna uh soon take a take a break but let me ask you um about the notion of what you think if there's any potential for a Biden-Harris administration to begin to address how white supremacy, I mean, today um, the, the, the President Biden issued an executive order and it was something advancing racial equity for underserved communities. And every time they do some of these feel good kind of um take these feel good kind of actions it, it it doesn't have the meat of getting to the core of the real problem and the real problem is the way in which whiteness white supremacy and white privilege is able to so distort the judicial process by money resources contact and uh, and in in in, in, in ex- implicit biases in the system do you think they they're going to 
try to reach real deep down uh, to address those? I really hope so. Um, I think that my time horizon on fixing these problems isn't one month, one week, one administration. He certainly went backwards over the last four years. Um, And I think that you really do need reformers in government to do the, 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 the hard work of saying we need to fund legal services big time. People need to have not be over. People who are working as public defenders in a federal or state level are overburdened. They have too many cases so that we should have federal money paying to make sure people have good lawyers who are not stretched so thin. And this goes beyond, you know, as you know, even beyond the criminal justice system. In most states, you know, people go in without a lawyer when they're home is about to be taken from them in foreclosure or are in court without a lawyer when their children could be taken from them or when they're in a divorce proceeding. You know, no one should be unrepresented in this, those kinds of circumstances. And, the, the, you know, that to me, one of the biggest steps would be the real money behind having good lawyers who aren't stretched too thin for everybody facing um, this any kind of criminal justice proceeding where their liberty could be taken away. They simply, even if you are given public assistance, you know, public counsel, they're not getting what they deserve because as good as these lawyers are, they can't do their job. Sometimes they're just handed the file as they walk into court. Yeah. So what what you're suggesting, and you also suggested in your book, Big Dirty Money, is that we need to do a better job in this country as justice activists in making sure that public defenders are properly and adequately funded. Right, and that's the flip side of beefing up the ability for people who don't have a lot of power to defend themselves when charges are coming at them, and also balancing out the fact that um, the Justice Department needs to have more funding to tackle some of the biggest offenders in the business sphere to stop, to prevent in the future, and to punish people like the Sackler family from Purdue Pharma who helped get millions of people addicted to opioids because of the drugs that they put on the market through supposedly legal means. I mean, these are some of the biggest, these, this family and other companies are like just like drug cartels. And instead of being rounded up and prosecuted, they're celebrated in fashion magazines. They entertain people in fancy homes. This is, this, we're sending a real message in the society about whose families matter and whose families don't. Yep, yep, and we we certainly saw that uh, as we looked at how the Trump crime syndicate cartel Mm. uh, has Mm -hmm. been dealt with, and we're going to talk with you more about that and sentencing guidelines um, on the other side of of the break. One of the things that you write in your book is that crime is hiding in plain sight. And 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 I think that anyone who is looking at the issue of justice in America understands this. 
And for those of you who are listening and are activists, now is the time to use our voices to become abolitionists. Because as Frederick Douglass proclaimed in 1857, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. Our guest tonight is Professor Jennifer Taub, the author of Big Dirty Money, She's a legal scholar and an advocate who writes, whose writings focus on follow-the-money matters, uh, promoting transparency and opposing corruption. And we, Jennifer, we are, Professor Taub, we are so glad to have you with us. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we are also going to take your calls at 347-838-9852. We are not going to be long, so stay tuned if you want to come and join us in our chat room. It's blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG, and the number 347-838-9852. If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That's is the promised glade, the hill we climb, if only we dare it. Because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, transforming truth to power. One broadcast at a time. Stay tuned and we'll be right back with more. It's amazing how people can come together by spending time apart. Quest Diagnostics thanks you for doing your part to stop the spread of the coronavirus through social distancing and proper hygiene. At Quest, we're doing our part by establishing COVID-19 lab testing capabilities across the country to better serve our communities and healthcare providers. If you suspect you have COVID-19, talk to a healthcare provider and let's keep doing our part so we can all come back together stronger than ever. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, We had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. If Republicans are playing cutthroat politics, why are the Democrats playing that? And why can't they be on the offensive? And that, that's the first. Here's the second charge. You've got the Republicans 
beating this old message of debt. You got Mitt Romney standing in front of a dead clock now. And that will be the narrative. And the Democrats, you don't see this coming? You don't see this narrative coming as they force another debt fight. As they the best of political talkback, common sense, right from the concrete. Urban, progressive, politics, politics, politics. Friday night at TruthWorks Network, 10 p.m. Alpha drills down deep the lies, the conspiracies in politics. It's just damn politics. The Alpha Show. that we beat, that we as a people, not that slavery ended, but that we won. This is what Phenom is trying to tell us in his work, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, um, the wretched of the earth. You can't, the, the colonizer must be killed by the, by, by, the, by, the, by the native in order for the native to ever be free. The colonizer can't simply say you are free because then you are not free because he's determined the conditions of your freedom. So I think we need to recover our history and acknowledge, like the 1619 Project tried to, that we've always been the people committed to democracy in America. That when they said democracy also incorporated racism, Jim Crow, and every other kind of ism that you can think of. And if we don't acknowledge our victories, then we'll keep on thinking we're not winning. We'll keep thinking we're at the bottom of the spiral when we're at the top of it. We'll think we're at the bottom of the stairs when we're at the top of it. So, so for me, I think we have to look at King, look at the movement, and recognize that we've had movements, as I said earlier, with great success. Under, under Booker Washington, black America had 60,000 businesses under, under Booker. And then they had a reconstruction movement. We had a successful political movement that lasted for 12 years with black senators. With black senators in Mississippi, Hiram, 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 um, uh, Hiram, thank you. And then, and, you know, so, so we've had all of this. And I think the problem is we keep cutting ourselves off from our own history and our victories, or we reinterpret them in a way that don't empower us. So we see our freedom in slavery in Abraham Lincoln's beard. But if you read... Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. And now back to Janice. And we do thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. Uh, We are targeting in white crime when whiteness presides with law professor and author Jennifer Taub. She is the author of... Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Cost of White Collar Crime. She's a professor of law at the Western New England University School of Law, where she teaches civil procedure. Uh, Todd was the Nichols Visiting Professor of Law in the fall of 2019 at the Harvard Law School. And uh, we are so pleased to have her with us, our friend, Ellie Mistal said about this book, it's no accident that African-American citizens can be brutalized or even killed for minor alleged infractions while corporate wrongdoers escape prosecution or punishment. 
When we see street corner drug dealers denied bail but crooked pharmaceutical conglomerates uh, pay out dividends, we are seeing the justice system work as intended. He further says that Professor Taub explains how the rot goes to the heart of our legal and regulatory systems themselves, and we are so pleased to have Professor Taub with us tonight. Before we went to to break, one of the things that I mentioned that I, I wanted to focus in on, and, you know, I've spent... Uh, almost a week trying to not say the name Donald Trump but it's it's hard because of the way in which he has mangled uh this country let's talk about um professor Taub the pardons mhm um there are so many <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it really started out. One of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm just so, I'm not surprised, but I'm astounded and outraged, and most people who are listening to us tonight are outraged about, is that it is so blatant, and the country as a whole has not been so enraged as to force the political body to look carefully at it, and it's an oh God kind of thing when you hear the the Biden administration representatives and even the president say, "Well, that's not important." A little wave. So it is. I've been thinking about these pardons since the very first presidential pardon from Donald Trump of. Uh, the terrible sheriff Arpaio, um, and I have a you know you can look at these you can find the data right on on the internet and I have dropped all the pardons um, into this I had dropped all the pardons into a spreadsheet so I could analyze the pardons and the commutations so I could analyze them um, and then these new ones just came up um, and so many of them before we even get to the people that he pardoned who were involved in crimes associated with him for which he also might be prosecuted before we even get to those. So many of a a shocking number of the people he pardoned, for example, last February of 2020 were white collar criminals. In fact, I, um, I actually begin the book, the preface, um, with something about that. And if your readers um, would give give me the moment, I can just read it. It's it's quite brief. Um, and if you're okay with it too, um, here's how it the would book be helpful. Again, okay. So the book is the book begins. The book is called Big Dirty Money, um, and the preface is entitled Crime Scene. And here's how it begins. And keep in mind that. The book was published in September, but it had to go to press um, in the you know in the summer. So um, this is where it was. Big cheaters often prosper, and they do it right in front of our faces. You can see them almost daily on the front page of the paper, 
in your Twitter feed and on broadcast and cable news programs. Rogues to riches stories are common now. Cheating the public and getting away with it is the new normal. Turn on the television today and you're more likely to see wealthy, well-connected white men secure presidential pardons than watch one get convicted and sent to prison. Just after Valentine's Day in 2020, President Donald Trump granted clemency to a slew of affluent felons. Their offenses? Bribery, investment fraud, tax evasion, Medicare fraud, public corruption, computer hacking, an extortion cover-up, money laundering, conspiracy to defraud the federal government, obstruction of justice, mail fraud, wire fraud. No white-collar crime left behind. The official White House announcement used the word successful four times to describe these elite outlaws but made no mention of the ordinary people they victimized. So that's how I began my book. And here we have, you know, how he ends his presidency is just more of these. I mean, occasionally he'll throw in somebody into the group who was actually deserving of a pardon, who had served tremendous time, maybe who had been overcharged, um, who was someone without much power in the system and may not have had good lawyers, right? He'll put those in, but that's not what these pardons are mostly about. There's a shocking number of people, um, you know, who either were convicted of white-collar crime, something that he, I believe, spent years committing, and we will soon find out if he will be held accountable for his most recent offenses, but also people who were absolutely brutal, um, who committed war crimes, and so on. This is a kind of um, machismo, a kind of brutality and above the law from, you know, the connection between, you know, the dirty money and the violence that a lot of, um, you know, it's kind of a kind of a kleptocratic dream that he thought he was living out. And it's not surprising at all that those would be the types of people he would he would pardon. Well, let, let, let's talk about um, the different kinds of pardons. I, I think it, I, I think it's very important. I believed uh, that the pardons last year, uh, the strategy was to set up a a pattern, a president for pardons of that type so mm-hmm. that he would be able to also pardon his associates who had engaged in that type of crime. Mm-hmm. This last batch I, I, is prob- really problematic in the sense that they are people who could very well um, I, I saw them as bribes, quid pro quo mm-hmm. and bribes. Mm-hmm. And here's the question for all of us to think about. <clears throat> again and again, we have to ask, 
how do we as American citizens tolerate this kind of corruption of our judiciary and our laws? The only way to do that is to stand up, investigate, and prosecute if the evidence leads there, and it seems like it does. I mean, we will have a new attorney general, and I believe um, that he needs to do something that, um, in a piece that was just published by George Conway, he needs to set up many special counsels to pursue these cases. To make Some of them we have um, already, for example, with the Mueller report, there's already enough evidence to prosecute Trump for obstruction of justice in connection with his trying to interfere in that investigation. That's one, but there are so many other things like what happened during, um, you know, for the first impeachment with Ukraine or what we're seeing now, all the stuff leading up to the insurrection that's coming out or the case where with Michael Cohen with the campaign finance fraud with the payoffs to Stormy Daniels um, and uh, Karen um, I think it's Mc, is it McDougal was her name? I'm, I'm, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know those, those. You know he was individual one. There, there are plenty of areas where he needs to be investigated. But using the pardon power in this way, which appears to be, um, you know, it needs to be investigated, and there may be witnesses that he was using the pardon power, dangling pardons, to get people to um, lie or to. Um, not you know, not speak, not not um, turn on him. So that's one mm-hmm. thing. The other thing is, uh, which I think is very hopeful. You may have seen reported out um, in the news is that his lawyers aren't very smart. And so even though we talk about you need you know that the wealthy have good lawyers, well sometimes they don't. And the pardons that Trump issued in certain cases were not drafted. Um, they left big holes, for full big coverage. Loophole. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. was like not an insurance, <laughs> a good insurance coverage. You know, and I'm sure that if Manafort's, I mean, I'm surprised that his lawyer, his lawyers had a hand in it because it's drafted in such a way to leave him really exposed. And I think the new, um, you know, I think that those cases need to be brought, the ones that are where his exposure is. And I'm not, you know, I, you know, so I really think that nobody is above the law and especially not the president. So that's what the criminal, you know, those cases need to be investigated. Um, if the evidence is strong, then they need to bring the cases. There should not be a decision made um, to drop those cases. They must be pursued swiftly. Also, let's just make clear, and I think you know this, we don't know all the pardons Trump actually issued. There's no requirement to make them public, right? At the time, it, it's a tradition, but for all we know, um, he pardoned himself or he pardoned family members or others, and we will only find out if and when they are prosecuted and their lawyer says, you, you better halt that investigation. We have this pardon, right? And so that's going to be real interesting as that comes up. And then the third thing is the impeachment trial begins. What is it in two weeks, right? Yeah. About and on the eighth, two, mm-hmm. two weeks and a few days. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm really glad that's moving forward. And I certainly hope that 
two-thirds of the senators present vote to convict because, to me, it's the second vote that matters the most, which is removing him. You know, second vote is just a simple majority to say, okay, this person's been been convicted under the impeachment article, but now we want to have a second vote to prevent him from ever serving again. That needs to happen as well. So these, you know, I imagine we're going to get some challenge up to the Supreme Court as to whether a president can be impeached after he's left office. And I certainly hope the Supreme Court, if they face that question, um, and if they and if they decide to take it, which is not clear that they would, that it results in the, the, case, the impeachment moving forward. Because as you note, it's not just about this guy who's no longer in office and preventing him. It's about the next president and the next one and our very trust in the system, which was mm-hmm. already, as mm-hmm. we talked about, shaky. Yeah. You know, you in your book, you propose six fixes to the current corporate criminal justice system. And one of the things that you propose is to create and fund a new division within the Justice Department on detecting, prosecuting, convicting, and incarcerating big money criminals. And I think probably since you wrote the book that the corruption that, that has occurred within our government, probably that which is a, 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 an excellent uh, suggestion uh, for for restructuring of the Department of Justice, and it ought to include government official crime. Absolutely, we're, and right now those are separate. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, because it we're needs looking to be joined together. Yeah, sitting members of the Congress who are now mm. suspected of treason and sedition and aiding and abetting insurrection. I, I, I mean, even as you say all of that, it takes my breath away. We, we all saw what happened, but I think, you know, it's been four or more with this man, straight years of one chaotic, dangerous, terrible event to another. And I think um, I think I'm still reeling, honestly, from the events of January 6th, but especially not just what happened in the day, but what happened that night. I was naive mm-hmm. enough to believe that the House and the Senate would take it up from where they left it and just say we are not going to move forward on the, um, you know, on um, these challenges, and we are just going to look at the votes and we are, you know, we are going to look at electoral votes and we are going to, you know, to accept them and count them. I thought yeah. that would be the decent thing to do. And to see that in the house, the majority of Republicans voted not to accept the electoral count, the very big lie that led people um, to violence in part. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them were mm-hmm. headed that way because they they would do whatever Trump would say, but they believed him that the election was stolen from him, despite the fact that there was no evidence of that, despite the fact that what more than 60 courts rejected this theory. Um, and I'm just, yeah. I mean, and that we have people, we have two senators, Howley and Cruz, and we have many, many, what is it over 170? I can't remember the number, maybe 178 
who um, who supported who 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 continued to push this lie, and even a couple of them, or at least one of them that we know of, who was tweeting out to the general public the whereabouts of the speaker. Why? You know, why mm-hmm. was that person mm-hmm. doing that? Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, and, and it's even, really and even today, they're still sitting in office. Yeah. Yeah. Ahead, even sorry. today, in charging uh, papers. The Washington Post is reporting that the FBI said that during the Capitol riot, one of the people that had been arrested received Facebook messages from, they didn't specify the the sender in the report, uh, that he was being updated of the location of lawmakers. Yes, that piece blew my mind. Was it, it was yes. the, um, it was a member of the Oath Keepers, and I cannot um, – yeah, they didn't his, his, say – His name is Caldwell. Um, oh, I, I remember – Caldwell, his, right. And yeah. he was arrested. He there were a couple others. There was a guy – maybe he was part of the – he was with some people who were former military. Right, and we don't know. Yeah. What's fascinating about the, the piece in the Washington Post is that they were communicating through some sort of system that wasn't um, text-based. I think it was a radio-based communication system, but somehow either it was intercepted mm-hmm. or they had recordings yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even so to the even to the it's a, yeah. to the specific instance where a message read all members mm-hmm. are in the quote all members are in the tunnel under capital seal them in turn on gas. It's horrifying. I mean, what and the what I you find, know? And here here's another. You know, I hate to be a what? gossiper, but. You know, at my age, you 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 tend <laughs> to see things and you throw them out there. But in terms of the hundreds of thousands of missing vaccine dosages, I think we're going to see something around what the previous administration had to do with that. That doses that should have were expected to go to the states, never showed up, and nobody knows where they are. And the absence of a distribution plan was part of the strategy. I mean, you mm. you, you have to – I think people have to understand the extent to which we were dealing with an international criminal cartel in charge of our government. And I've said Can that I return over just, and over. <laughs> Can I return for a moment? Because I want to talk about that guy Caldwell, who you mentioned was getting these messages via Facebook um, and then communicating by radio. The guy who was told in these details, it, the Washington Post reported on it because it was um, part of the criminal complaint against him. And it's amazing. We don't know, like you said, who was, Sending those messages, giving him but the FBI those knows. details. The FBI knows. That's They're right. Just not so, mm-hmm. and so someone out there, someone out there, who is sending those messages knows they're in trouble or they're already cooperating. Right? We don't know what's yeah. going on. Yeah. But what yeah. I want to put this in the context, just so that you, you and I know, and many of your listeners know, and many people understand how serious this is and yet why is it that judges there are federal magistrates for example in Tennessee who let the zip tie guy out 
of, uh, and he's not out on bail. Mm-hmm. In other words, of the, he has tons of, of weapons in his home. Of the and 173 so people. The, the, yeah. the horn man, the man with the wearing the horns and the furs. Yes. Yeah. He's out on bail. Although, do they the send, I think, do they send com- him back? A government computer. I worked for the yep. for the federal government for twenty four plus years. You steal something for a government property, you go to jail, and you sit there. Well, you might this be given. The question is, you know, she might. You might be given bail, but in the context, the problem is this is in the context of a major. The only like. In, you know, since since the White House was burned in the early 19th century, this is the first major, and that wasn't even from the inside, right? This is the first attack on the U.S. Capitol building by, you know, this ma- in, major insurrection. And this is by you know, internal uprising um, from people who wanted to overthrow our very democracy using violence. And the That's idea right. that that you would let them out on bail without knowing who they could be communicating with or how they, who they'd be meeting with. We don't know who knows each other. The idea that some magistrate in Tennessee, it's like three different people before him, he let them out on bail. And he said something like, in the U.S., the norm is that you're free while you await charges. And I'm like, who's U.S.? Right? Who's U.S. are you talking about? Because that's not the norm. And this also this situation isn't the norm. Right, it reminds me, and I don't want to compare someone who steals a computer to somebody who commits murder, but the analogy I'm thinking of is Dylan Roof. You know, that situation when he went into the church and murdered people, and when he was on escape in the car, do you remember when the police officers pulled him over, what they did before they brought him into the Yeah, they, took, they, what, they, offered him, um, they offered him a trip to Burger King. That's right. And, and I, fed him. You know. And then you have Again, the My Pillow guy yes. who's who's conspiring oh. with the a sitting president of the United States yes. who uh uh pays the bail of Kevin yeah. Rittenhouse. I mean oh, he was so part this, of that? This, oh, he Kyle, paid this Kyle guy's bail. Yeah. Mm. So and on you top know, of it, he was he was and, and, lauded as a hero. They're cheering him on. This, this guy who murdered someone, exactly. a kid who comes across. And also, why are all these young men traveling with their mothers everywhere to get into crimes? I mean, you know, I don't even. Well, it's so. It's, in other words, why is it considered? You would think that engaging in some sort of violent. Um, insurrection is something that's so clearly illegal, you would think it would be something you would hide from your mother. The fact that they're proud of this tells us something is really rotten, um, that they think they're so immune from any kind of consequence. And they probably and, thought and they would it, because it, Trump was there. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I, I want to uh, ask you is how are your students at Western New England uh, Law School um, responding to what is happening in this country, what are you hearing from them in terms of their take 
on who they are going to be as lawyers? I'm very new to the school. I used to teach at Vermont Law School, and I only joined my Western New England um, last fall, you know, just um, Mm -hmm. about six months ago. And we have been, because of the pandemic, um, in a mode where I have to stay six feet away from everybody with a mask on. And the only way other than um, a classroom or via Zoom that that we would communicate would be by email. And I have not um, discussed any. I mean, we have had, I think, some Zoom presentations about the different things that are going on, um, you know, politically. But my courses are not, you know, they're law classes where this doesn't really um, doesn't come up in the course of the of the classes that I teach, and we don't really have an opportunity for students to come in and ask one-on-one questions because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you, what, what, what's your your take on what a Garland Department of Justice is going to be like, and whether or not they they are? Mm-hmm. I'm hopeful because my friends who are federal prosecutors are hopeful. They also, in addition to his leadership, you know, believe that he's someone who's well-trusted and that he's independent, and so no one would accuse him of favoring, you know, being working for Biden the way that Trump wanted his attorney generals to work for him. Also, I've heard amazing things about the number two, the deputy AG, um, Lisa Monaco. And then we also have... um, Sorry? Kristen Clark and Benita Gupta. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, Kristen Clark I'm so excited about. And so, so we have a whole, and Gupta is Benita Gupta as well, we have a whole um, support system under his leadership. Um, and I think those are, you know, my, again, I was never a prosecutor um, and never in, um, you know, I have friends who've worked in the Civil Rights Division. People who know these women are very impressed um, with them and very hopeful. Uh, let me also try to incorporate in our discussion about whiteness in the justice system on the um, uh, ma- mandatory minimums. Do you think that there's going to be an effort? I know that there's going to be an effort in the activist community but will there be a response, and is there enough fodder uh, with this administration to address those? I mean, I know Kristen uh, uh, Clark and um, Monica uh, from having worked with them on a number of the Scott sisters and the Kimba Smith um, uh, case and um, the Legal Defense Fund with Elaine Jones, but do you think that that this administration is going to have enough to address some of this? I think the question, I think the, I, I'm hoping that that is the case. I think so. This is why um, the women in place we, we talked about are there. Um, the question is whether Congress will. And having that, you know, having the majority, because we have the Harris um, tie vote, 
sounds good, mm-hmm. but not all Democrats are necessarily going to be on board. Um, and even if you get every Democratic vote, um, there still is a filibuster, right? So the question is really whether um, the Congress is willing to, if they meet hurdles, and if the president can't persuade, if he is behind in supporting legislation, if you cannot persuade um, the, the number of votes you need um, between, mm-hmm. you know, maybe some Democrats and, and getting some Republicans on board who don't want to, they're going to have to get rid of the filibuster if they want to govern and get things done. And that's really the question. So, you know, it, it really is interesting, and we're going to take some calls, uh, Professor Tobb, uh, that are people who are waiting to talk with you. Uh, but it's really interesting how the criminals who are in place, and I call them criminals, I there is no doubt in my mind that Mitch McConnell is one of the biggest corrupt criminals ever elected to public office. Uh, you've got Ted Cruz and Rob Johnson and and um, Josh Hawley, and Joe uh, Mnuchin, and I mean, you've got all of these people who are so vested and they are willing to violate federal law under the cover of their whiteness. Because, you know, of course, they're white. They're they're not trying to violate the law. They're just doing their politics. Um, So I'm, I'm not sure if the whole judicial system now turns on what happens in a filibuster in the U.S. Senate. That's um, the very least for me to say pathetic. But it's also outrageous. So I wouldn't say the whole, I guess I would say, I don't think it's the whole judicial system. I think that so much power is in the hands of, you know, for example, in choosing who to prosecute, who not to, and those kinds of policies still reside in the executive. And well, of course, well, here's, the course, the, here's the problem, but, Jennifer. The problem is that the federal government provides funding for so much of the work that is being done by law enforcement and the courts in the states that it mm-hmm. has a hammer that it can use yep. when justice is does not prevail and it doesn't do that. That's that you is are my right. point. Yeah, I mean I'm not Let's take a call from Chicago. To uh, oh sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. You were making a point. Oh no, you go ahead. I want to hear the caller. Seven seven three you're on the air. Alpha. Good evening. Thank you for Good your evening, call. Jonathan. Good evening, Professor. Uh, I have a problem with this idea. What has happened with the 50-50 split in the Senate is that um, Mitch McConnell has effectively won, and that's because of Joe Manchin. He will not allow the filibuster to be eradicated, and they will filibuster the agenda all of the way through. Unless Lisa Murkowski, and she's threatening to 
jumped to uh, the Democratic side, at least for the Equal Rights Amendment. But uh, how do you how do you see dealing with Joe Manchin and basically cutting the legs out from under a progressive Democratic agenda? And that's what's about to happen. Watch it happen. Apple, are you asking me or are you asking Professor Tobb? Both. Oh. <laughs> I well, mean, I think what you've got to – oh, you go ahead, Janice. You go first. No, no, no. Go ahead, Jennifer. I mean, I, you know, West Virginia and Joe Manchin, um, I, you're right, and it sounds like he will be an obstacle in that way, and I think that you, you either um, – you have to um, get a Republican on board, or you maybe there'll be a Republican who decides to caucus with the Democrats if they, which seems unlikely, but it's happened. It's happened before where someone has switched parties or said, "I'm not caucusing. I'm independent. I'm caucusing now with the Dems." Um, you know, I don't know. Um, you don't. It doesn't seem right that an entire agenda could be. Um, could be stymied by one person and someone having that much power. And I think that hopefully Joe Biden um, could persuade uh, either Manchin, which seems unlikely, but or somebody else to move over, whether you said, you know, it, you're laughing, but I don't know. I, um, I, I mean, I'm sorry, yeah, but I Yeah, I mean, have I don't to. know. Right. I wouldn't, but, but Alpha, you know, here's, here, 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 here is uh, another path in which to look at this. And that is, um, thank God Tom Perez is gone, and you've got Jamie Harrison, who is well experienced in the Democrat in working with the Democratic National Committee. So now he is the chair. He's the chief of strategy for the DNC. And if he doesn't go into West Virginia and jack up the Democratic Party of West Virginia and have them primary mansion, then the Democrats are going to always lose. Well, I like that organizer side of you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> you got to do something about it. you got to do something. Yeah, I, think I mean, things, they, you know, they can close. force him. They can force him out of out of that seat if they have the will. Because Manchin is not on the Democratic agenda. He's on a Republican agenda. He's on a white supremacy agenda, a white conservative agenda. He is all for the whiteness and the control and the power. You know, it'd be great to, I mean, it's important to do that. You see the Republicans planning to now primary Liz Cheney and all of the Republicans who voted in the House for impeachment, who had the courage to do that. Um, and, you know, I think that primaries are important. Um, you want to make as sure, the, though, as the man that is on the other line, as, as the man <laughs> is on the other line, we have to, as activists, understand that the Republicans never go home. Isn't that, isn't that your never. mantra, Alpha? They never go home. Yes, and if we, They never go if, home. And, and they're always chipping away. When they lose, they continue to chip away. Joe Manchin and every Republican 
there will be no persuading a Republican to come over because the consequences are dire. They yeah. will primary yeah. whoever jumps, and they will lose. They will be but, primary. But here's, 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 here's another factor. The other factor is they know something that we don't know about what Donald Trump is organizing with his 75 million voters. Mm-hmm. Well, the Donald Trump 75 million voters is one thing. Donald Trump is another. You stop him from doing anything by prosecuting him with extreme prejudice. That's why, Janice, I mentioned Glenn Kirshner to you. All of these people that I had mentioned to you are so angry with what he has done in the Justice Department that they're just itching to get a shot at him. And did you say that uh, a federal judge has said that the uh, lawyers have to give the Trump lawyers 72-hour notice before they release the tax returns to the uh, Democratic Congress? Yeah. And 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 that's how and and that's how the 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 bench is working to ensure that the Democrat that the Repub- Republican power base is going to remain in power. Alpha, thank you for your call and thank you for your birthday uh, uh, greetings and well wishes and. We have to continue this conversation, but but one of the things that I'm saying is that we need to go with Barack, um, with the idea of how to citizen. We yes. have to understand if we don't claim our power as citizens in our organizing and doing it, because as Thomas P. O'Neill always said, politics is local, all politics. It doesn't mean well, it doesn't you, resonate. Yeah. Thank you, Alpha, for your call. Uh, for those of you who are calling in, don't forget you have to press the one for me to know that you want to talk with us. Uh, Jennifer Tab, I, I'm so grateful to have met you uh, and to have you with us. We've only got a short all the all the people are now jumping on the board. <laughs> 908, you are on our common ground. Thank you for your call. 908. Hi, am I on right now? Is this me right you now? You are. Yes, you oh, are. Oh, how are you Good. Um, I actually, you know what, I've been listening to a lot of different online or, you know, debates and stuff like that over the last bunch of months because of what's been going on in the country I think what we're having is a lot of big, you know, a lot of big influence on social media. Um, I would like to know your ideas about Antifa and how they've been and what they've been doing in Portland. How do you view them? You know, I've, so I was, I'm, okay. I'm very upset. I saw the, I don't, I saw the, um, I think it was yesterday. Um, maybe was it eight people who were arrested in Portland who were burning things. And right. the uh, article said they were from Antifa. Um, I'm not right. sure if, where they're from. I think it's terrible. Um, in fact, I condemned it on social media. It's unacceptable well, to call. But well, let me just say this. Say, 
is I don't know where they're actually from. They were um, burning the, or bombing or doing something to the Republic. I'm sorry, to the Democratic offices. So, to me, I, I don't know that what you know. I don't know that they're. That's yeah. what the article yeah. said, but someone else said they were anarchists. You know, I'm not. I'm not a supporter of violent anarchists. I'm not a supporter of violent insurrectionists. But I want to be clear um, that there's violence um, all over the country, which I don't support. But I don't want it. I don't want. Um, how do I put this? There's domestic violence. There are anarchists. There's um, uh, all kinds of things like that. But it's not this. You know, that saying that. The, the man down the street um, was involved in a homicide where he killed his family and children, killed himself. That's terrible. I condemn it. But that has nothing to do with the people who came to the Capitol to try to stop um, a peaceful transfer of power. I condemn them both, but, I, but it's not – we should not be distracted from the, how horrific it is that our democracy yeah. could have ended on January 6th. Well, that's uh, 908, thank you for your Antifa. question, and Antifa don't forget, Antifa is not an organization. Yes, it Antifa is. Antifa is an ideology. They, no, it's not. Okay. They actually have a Facebook page that's dedicated. We, that is not we, true. We have to go. That is it's not all true. a cover. That is not true. It's they all a cover. They spent the summer Goodbye. four months attacking a federal You know, my show. My show. 323, very quickly. We don't have very much time. Three, two, three, Good you're evening. on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Thank you so much for having me, BJ. This is Jay. Loving the show. Now, I'm going to be real with you. I'm going to be all over the board, but it's going to be quick. I know exactly what to do. I'm tweeting and calling and Facebooking. I'm going to everybody's page and letting them know it's this, that, and the other on a daily basis. No one is reaching out to me, and it seems like I'm not being heard. But nonetheless, I'm still doing my part there. I want to tell you here in Cali, we hire, as in elected, our um, our district attorney. He proposed rehabilitation in sentencing, and he has been under attack, under recall now, because of his actions mm-hmm. by by the prosecutors. Who does that? That's a real serious issue here, and it's real serious for all across the country. That's a move. That's a backlash that we're going to have to deal with. And you know who's in jail? Us. They look like us, an impoverished Mm -hmm. life. The whole deal. You know who's going there. Let's talk about or just put on the table William Barr and Steve Mnuchin. That's deep dealing with our money, okay? And what about the whole just the ilk of Trump's family yeah. being yeah. up in yeah. the administration. Come on now. Yeah. It's all across the board, the ugly that is going yeah. on. And like I said, I'm addressing this on a regular basis, and no one is able, it seems, to do anything about it. I'm in constant contact. I have volunteered. I'm a super vol for, for all the squad and all the You You are the leader. You are the leader that – you have been looking for three two two three. You got to get to some other calls, but by doing what you're you doing, y'all. okay. Love you back. Thank you very much, um, Jennifer Tom. 
thank you so very much uh, for being with us tonight. We're going to have to have you back. Two hours is never enough to get through these mm-hmm. kinds of critical uh, issues. But we're going to take one more call. 857, you're on the air. Welcome to Our Common Ground. Well, this might not be appropriate with such high-level discussion. But this oh, is my goodness. And I just wanted to wish <laughs> you a, a happy birthday. And I'm just so, so um, happy that you are out here advocating for the masses and giving us great education and the tools and equipping us with the knowledge. So happy birthday, Thank Mom. Thank you, my dear. The love of my love life. You. Thank you, Miles. Bye, Thank you. <laughs> Happy birthday, Nani. Okay. Uh, stay with, stay on the line, and we'll come back to you. We'll come back to you. Jennifer Taub, thank you very much, and I want to encourage everyone to um, read the book, to buy the book, Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice, an unseen cost of white-collar crime, which gets to the heart of how we do justice in America. Jennifer, are you coming back? Absolutely, and thank you, Janice Graham, for having me and on your special birthday. I'd love to come back. Okay, and uh, we are grateful for your uh, leadership on these issues we need to, you know, one of the things, people, is that this is how you connect with allies. So we, we're we hoping that all of you follow Jennifer at JTOB on Twitter so that you can get involved with the numerous kinds of proposals and uh, connections and resources that she has in regard to Uh, when white presides. Thank you, Jennifer. Stay with us, Jennifer. Don't you hang up. And I'm going to go back to um, Tara Graham. Thank you so very much. Miles Graham, thank you so very much. And my HP Honeypot uh, for all of the wonderful, wonderful happiness that you sent my way um, on my birthday and every day. Your line is open. You got one minute. Eight well, three you eight five seven. You're there. Yes, you this, you are just is, a blessing to us, and uh, the wisdom and guidance that you've given me and the exposure has provided me and equipped me to prepare these wonderful children that I have to be contributors, um, and to ensure that Mason just walked me through the three branches of government today, (laughs) and he wanted to know why the executive level branch was not enforcing the laws. (laughs) Um, Oh, wow. He's been been reading my email. And he told me that Joe Biden is going to be doing a better job of helping the judicial system to interpret the law properly. So I think you're doing an amazing job in helping me keep these children um, woke 
and wanting to be a part of solution solving. So thank well, you thank so you, much, Mom. Thank you so much. You th- Thank you very much. Okay, that was my family. And we got to get out of here. And I want to thank all of our callers. Um, and, you know, I don't often, I, I try. Um, and I want to thank people for their well wishes, people in the chat room, people who have texted me and Facebooked me and Twittered me. Next week, here at Our Common Ground, Dr. Hassan Johnson talking about the Black Men's Institute, and we hope that you will join us. Let me introduce Amanda Gorman, uh, our nation's first ever National Poet Laureate. President, Dr. Biden, Madam Vice President, Mr. Emhoff, Americans, and the world. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace in the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always just is. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. And yes, we are far from polished, far from pristine, but that doesn't mean we are striving to form a union that is perfect. We are striving to forge our union with purpose, to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gaze not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We close the divide because we know to put our future first. We must first put our differences aside. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. We seek harm to none and harmony for all. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true. That even as we grieved, we grew. That even as we hurt, we hoped. That even as we tired, we tried. That we'll forever be tied together, victorious. Not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. Scripture tells us to envision that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. 
If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. That is the promise to Glade, the hill we climb, if only we dare it. Because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. We've seen a force that would shatter our nation rather than share it, would destroy our country if it meant delaying democracy. And this effort very nearly succeeded. But while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. In this truth, in this faith we trust, for while we have our eyes on the future, history has its eyes on us. This is the era of just redemption. We feared it at its inception. We did not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour, but within it we found the power to author a new chapter, to offer hope and laughter to ourselves. So while once we ask, how could we possibly prevail over catastrophe? Now we assert. How could catastrophe possibly prevail over us? We will not march back to what was, but move to what shall be, a country that is bruised, but whole, benevolent, but bold, fierce, and free. We will not be turned around or interrupted by intimidation because we know our inaction and inertia will be the inheritance of the next generation. Our blunders become their burdens. But one thing is certain. If we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy and change our children's birthright. So let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left with every breath from my bronze-pounded chest. We will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. We will rise from the gold-limbed hills of the West. We will rise from the wind-swept Northeast where our forefathers first realized revolution. We will rise from the lake-rimmed cities of the Midwestern states. We will rise from the sun-baked South. We will rebuild reconcile and recover in every known nook of our nation in every corner called our country our people diverse and beautiful will emerge battered and beautiful when day comes we step out of the shade of flame and unafraid the new dawn blooms as we free it for there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it if only we're brave enough to be it Thank you for joining us tonight at Our Common Ground. Join us each Saturday night, 10 p.m., transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you, reminding you to trust your story.